Baroness Honora Neal, for almost five decades, you have played a highly influential role in the field of philosophy and shed light on many of the most pressing intellectual and ethical questions of our time. And in their decision to award you the 2017 Holberg Prize, the Holberg Committee cites how you have not only transformed our understanding of Kant, but also demonstrated how to do philosophy in a way that measures up to the complex moral demands of the world today. What was the influence of your background, including growing up during and after the war? Of course, I was very small during the war, and I think the influence on me was largely that, like most families at the time, we moved very frequently. I was born in Northern Ireland. I uh, still go back there. In fact, I was there when I received the news about the prize. Uh, And so uh, I have a very uh, remote rural uh, background uh, in some ways, Uh, but my family were very educated, and after the war, my father left the army, and at a certain point, uh, he was uh, re-employed in uh, relations with Germany, first as the uh, British liaison officer with the American Control Commission. So when I was six, I went to Frankfurt, and I learnt German, and that's probably been very helpful for coming to work on Kant. Did issues of political conflict, global justice and morality have an impact on your thinking and reasoning when you were very young? Of course, political conflict was all around uh, in the uh, war and post-war period. I don't think anybody would have talked about global justice at the time. Of course, what was going on was uh, uh, the uh, parallel movements that led to the setting up of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights by the United Nations and the European uh, uh, Convention on Human Rights uh, by the Council of Europe, not, note, by the EU, by the Council of Europe. And so there was a great deal that now forms the standard institutional backdrop to discussions of global justice going on, but I have to say I was wholly unaware of it. And um, as for morality, uh, yes, uh, this was long ago, and people still thought uh, that duty was the fundamental category in which one would think about the question, what ought we do? In the 1960s, you studied at the University of Oxford before attending Harvard University, where you completed your PhD in 1969. In the 1970s, you taught at Barnard College, Columbia University, before returning to Britain upon your appointment as Professor of Philosophy at the University of Essex. What led you into philosophy? As an undergraduate, you were originally enrolled to study history with French and Latin. Were there any particular experiences that guided your career path? I came to think that I wasn't really cut out to be a historian. I was quite interested in uh, arguments and quality of arguments. I had a number of friends who were doing philosophy. It turned out that those were questions that interested me a great deal. I don't think I entirely pleased my history teachers when I told them I was minded to change, but I was sent to see the... uh, philosophy tutor at Somerville College, Elizabeth Anscombe, and we had a conversation about causality. And I'm told she wrote a very short note to her uh, colleagues on the governing body saying, this girl is hungry for philosophy. And so I was allowed to move and I studied philosophy with psychology. When did you become interested in Kant and what was it specifically about Kant that piqued your curiosity? Well, I was not initially drawn to Kant. I think very few people are initially drawn to Kant because uh, he seems uh, difficult. Uh, The language, in translation at least, seems quite bombastic. Uh, And although, uh, as an an undergraduate, I read Kant's groundwork of the metaphysic of morals, and indeed read it extremely carefully, uh, I thought, well, done that, uh, no more. Um, And so my first encounter was certainly quite limited. When I got to Harvard, I have to say that I found myself in a department that had uh, some extremely interesting people who in one way and another, although very diverse ways, were interested in Kant. 
for example, Stanley Cavell, for whom I was a teaching assistant, and uh, otherwise I don't think I would ever have read uh, Kant's text, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, in my early 20s, let alone taught it. Uh, and, of course, there was John Rawls, and uh, there was also uh, Charles Parsons, who really piqued my interest in Kant's philosophy of mathematics, a curious direction to go. But you see, it was quite disparate initially. And the reason I started writing on Kant for my PhD uh, was, in a way, uh, anxiety and revulsion at the implications of models of rational choice, which were, of course, the going way, then quite a new way of thinking about human rationality and reason. And I took a seminar with Robert Nozick, also a well-known political philosopher, and wrote a little paper on uh, models of rational choice. He said, that's very nice, you should publish it. And uh, although that's tempting for a graduate student, I thought, no, that can't be what reason is. So I began to look at a wider range of writings on reason. Um, very boring books when I look back on them, not at first Kant. And I went as the phrase has it, back to Kant, slowly and reluctantly. And it was because I thought he had more to say about the connections between reason and morality than any of the other authors I was reading. When you were <coughs> working on your doctorate at Harvard, your supervisor was the famous philosopher John Rawls, who you've mentioned. In your work on Kantian ethics, you have been heavily influenced by Rawls, but also critical of him. Could you describe, first of all, your experience of working with rules, and secondly, his influence on you and the essential areas where you disagree? Um, and Rawls was um, a marvellous teacher, uh, but I have to say I worked with him before he published that very well-known book, A Theory of Justice. We used to read chapters of that book in seminar and discuss it. He was quite excessively respectful of our... Uh, often rather limited uh, comments and criticisms. And I'm sure that we delayed the publication of the book a great deal, but it wasn't published until about the time I finished my PhD. Uh, Rawls's early work, uh, well, his middle work, his famous work, is above all that book, in which he tries to offer an account not only of justice, but more broadly of morality. Rawls's work took quite a different turn um, in, later on, uh, from the late 80s, and in particular in a book called Political Liberalism that he published in 1993, he maintains that we can only offer a reasoned account of justice and uh, stops the enterprise of trying to provide some sort of foundation for morality. Uh, I didn't follow him in that. I, I was uh, greedier, if you like. I thought we could have something about ethics as well as justice, and that was one of the things uh, that I suppose led me to take bits of Kant that he was less interested in very seriously. Um, working with him, he wasn't a very attentive supervisor. I had rather few meetings uh, with him. I was back in the UK by the time I submitted, and at Harvard, um, this wouldn't be acceptable nowadays, you had to have your supervisor's permission before you could submit. And he kept on not answering my letters. Finally, I sent him a telegram. Those were the days, you see. One sent telegrams. And I said, please advise whether submit. And he telegraphed back, thesis fine, submit. So I did. And uh, uh, then when I was next in the United States, had my viva. Um, but I remained close to him. And uh, I have often thought that... Uh, the importance of that early book, Theory of Justice, is that it um, ended the post-war drought in political philosophy. In the 1950s, um, a well-known Cambridge historian of ideas, Peter Laslett, published a series of books, um, and he wrote in the preface that, for the moment, political philosophy is dead. This was more or less true. It was part of the legacy of logical positivism. And Rawls, I think, did more than anyone else to revive political philosophy with his publications from the late 60s uh, through to his death.
John Rawls developed the term public reason, uh, which is central to much of your work. Public reason requires that the moral or political rules that regulate our common life be, in some sense, justifiable or acceptable to all those persons over whom the rules purport to have authority. You have argued that public reason can give us a better understanding of effective communication in modern democracies. How can public reasoning help us to communicate better in an age with increasing political polarisation? Um, the term public reason, in fact, goes back to the 18th century. It is, among other things, Kant's term. And, of course, that, uh, in part, explains why both Rawls and I came to use the word public reason. Uh, however, whereas Rawls uh, links public reason fairly closely uh, to questions about actual communication and, in particular, to some extent, democratic communication, perhaps not as much as Habermas, but he does, I was interested in Kant because he took a weaker view of public reason. He looked at uh, the necessary conditions for the possibility of communication, not actual communication, let alone actual agreement. So I suppose I was employing an uh, old Leibnizian approach, namely, uh, in philosophy, one could, should see how far one can get with weak assumptions. It's not a glorious thing in philosophy if you have to assume a great deal in order to derive conclusions. Uh, to me, the exciting thing is where you can use rather limited premises to get your conclusions. And what I found in uh, Kant's work, particularly his later work, uh, but of course once you've seen it there in the later work you realise how it is there at the start, is that he uses quite a limited and austere conception of public reason. And in fact, his conception of public reason is um, also articulated in his writings on moral philosophy under the very well-known heading of the categorical imperative. The categorical imperative is the principle uh, that we ought to act only on those principles that we can, at the same time, will as universal laws. You could generalise that and you get a certain very austere conception of public reason. Reasoning is public in Kant's sense of the term, not because lots of people actually understand it or because it takes place um, in conditions where everybody can participate, but because it meets the necessary conditions of the possibility of communicating. So that, for example, uh, in, if I'm trying to communicate to someone a reason for doing something, that reason will fail unless it is something that they can follow in thought and, if possible, if they decide to, uh, can act upon, could adopt as a principle for acting. So um, that is why I ended up thinking that Kant's conception of public reason uh, made fewer difficult assumptions and had a wider use than those which Rawls and Habermas had put forward in the uh, latter decades of the 20th century. One of the topics on which you've been regarded as an expert for decades is the issue of trust and accountability. Your 2002 BBC Reith lectures were on a question of trust. How do you define trust? Is it something explicit that can be measured? And is it something that can be taken for granted? I suppose that my, uh, as it were, strapline when I talk about trust, the slogan I have is trustworthiness is more important than trust. Trust is the response. And the difficult thing about placing and refusing trust well is that we want to align it with trustworthiness. You want to trust trustworthy people. And we want to align mistrust with untrustworthiness. So uh, intelligent trust, in my view, is a matter of judgment. Now, unfortunately, as I see it, a huge proportion of contemporary work on trust uh, ignores trustworthiness, and it tries to measure trust by asking people to say how much they trust people or institutions of certain sorts. Uh, we think of uh, 
the YouGov polls of the Eurobarometer, many other pollsters. Now, there are purposes for which polls are very useful. If you are a politician who is campaigning, finding out um, whether people like or trust what you say uh, can be useful in order to garner their votes. Um, if you want to sell something, it can be very useful to uh, look at what your customers think about something. If you want to buy something, it can be useful to look at consumer reports. Other people who buy something, uh, like a camera or a kettle, may find it very helpful to find out whether those who have bought them already think they're okay. So I don't think the polls have no point, but they have absolutely no point as a way of finding out about whether it is a good idea to place one's trust in complex matters or to refuse it in complex matters. So I would go in for measuring only where uh, it is clear that the context is one where measuring trust is a good plan. In 2002, you noted that people often choose to rely on the very people whom they claimed not to trust, and suggesting that we need to free professionals and the public service to serve the public, to work towards more intelligent forms of accountability, to rethink a media culture in which spreading suspicion has become a routine activity. Can you expand on these statements? And do you now, 15 years later, see the lack of trust in public officials and institutions as a growing or a diminishing problem? Well, let me say a little bit about trust first. We don't have as good evidence as people think for the decline in trust. That's to say we have very few um, repeated opinion polls. Where we do, we often find that the people who were mistrusted 20 years ago are still the people who are mistrusted. For example, in the UK, politicians and journalists were mistrusted, whether rightly or wrongly, 20 years ago, and are still bottom of the trust rankings. Judges and nurses were at the top, and they're still at the top. So we should be very careful about assuming that there has been a uniform decline of trust. What I think is true is that people now find themselves having to make decisions about matters that are complex, indirect, difficult, and where they don't have the right sort of evidence or they can't really understand the evidence, or if they can understand it, they don't have the time and skills to assess it. That's what makes it hard for us to decide where to place and where to refuse trust. But to go back to that question about do people actually rely on people whom they claim to mistrust, Oh, yes. And we have an extraordinary sort of cognitive dissonance. People often say, well, I don't trust politicians, but by the way, my member of parliament is very reliable and very trustworthy. They say this about schools. They say, well, I don't trust the schools, but of course, my child is at a very good school. You also asked about whether auditing and systems of accountability and complex systems of regulation help. They help up to a point, but not where they become so complex that they actually interfere with people's performance of their primary tasks. A few years ago, I was uh, chairing a little inquiry into the safety of maternity services in England and Wales. By the way, they're very good, but not as good as in Norway. Uh, and uh, one of the midwives giving evidence said, you see, the trouble is, it takes longer to do the paperwork than to deliver the baby. And I've always kept her words in mind as an illustration of the deformation that systems of regulation and accountability, all of them introduced with the best of intentions, sometimes produce. And I think it is pretty important to ask about the feasibility of keeping the sorts of records people have to keep, and also about the way in which we make it possible or fail to make it possible for people to judge for themselves. How do people make it understandable that they are trying to act in a trustworthy way? And uh, direct face-to-face -face contact is often very useful for that purpose. And of course, we all know in the online world, there's not as much of it as we might like. And there's also a great deal of 
what I might call pseudo-direct contact in online communication. We've been talking about trust. Trust and trustworthiness can often fail to be in in alignment when the untrustworthy are trusted and the trustworthy are distrusted. Do you see, where, where do you see greatest dangers of any of these phenomena today? Well, I think certainly in public life, because large democracies uh, nowadays don't depend upon uh, local political meetings. They depend upon uh, nationally conducted campaigns, and these campaigns are conducted not only by uh, the political parties, but also, in many cases, by people with ulterior interests, including, of course, Uh, many companies, many professions, and so on. Uh, And they're very accessible. Uh, Also, one notes that Facebook, on which President Trump has relied a great deal, uh, succeeds in spreading messages uh, with none of the standards that one would traditionally have thought that journalists on the better newspapers sought to uh, maintain. All those things we talk about, like uh, fact-checking, like indicating whether something is an opinion piece or a report, those vanish in the online world. And I think there's an additional problem, which is that um, since people can use tweeting in order to indicate what they approve of, certain claims get circulated way beyond their plausibility. We saw this perhaps rather clearly in some of the Macedonian websites that received pro-Trump messages during the electoral campaign and then um, recirculated them every day and, of course, got quite a lot of advertising on their sites. And I'm told that these young Macedonians became rather rich on the basis of a political campaign in which they had little investment, of which they had little knowledge, but they were, as one says, fed their feeds. One of the paradoxes that you have explored is that some measures taken to increase trustworthiness in professionals such as increased auditing and increased openness, may fail to increase trust and may even create mistrust. How can that paradox be resolved? I think we should be far more careful before we introduce measures of accountability to try to think what effects they're actually going to have in real-time use. And... uh, I think this is widely understood. We have a thing called the Better Regulation, I think it's called Better Regulation Executive in the UK. They try to get people to do better regulation. Um, I can't say they've been dramatically successful. People understand very well what it is to do more regulation and spend more time regulating. But, you know, at the limit, there are things that have to be done. Financial audit, I think, is the most... uh, Uh, obvious one, financial audit is essential and uh, to think we could do away with that would be absurd. The bit of uh, modern regulatory practice that I suspect is um, not as helpful as people like to imagine is the insistence on transparency for two reasons. First of all, transparency quite rightly, is limited in ways that are intended to protect privacy, confidentiality, national security, and various other things. Secondly, transparency is understood as a matter of putting things into the public domain. You put it on the website, you put it somewhere. Who finds it? Well, maybe not all the people who um, might uh, have an interest in knowing about it. Can those who do find it understand it? No, not all of them. Do they have time to look for it? No. So transparency is, in my view, uh, uh, something whose import is often exaggerated. It can be useful, it can be important, but communication is more important than transparency, which takes us back, of course, to Kant. When you gave those BBC Reith lectures in 2002, did you imagine that you'd still be having to talk about trust 15 years later? 
Uh, no, though it's been quite interesting. Uh, I have continuously lectured and written on trust and accountability since then, and I have often felt I was banging my head against a stone wall. I have to say that in the last two or three years, I've been much more optimistic, and I have a very simple indicator that uh, shows me that people are thinking differently. I listen in every institutional context I go to to discover whether people uh, start their conversation by referring to trustworthiness or start their conversation by referring to trust. And when a business or a bank or anybody else says, well, we want to restore trust, we want to be trusted, I know they haven't yet realised what they really need to do. You are also highly regarded as a specialist on human rights, and you have written extensively on international justice and structural conditions of oppression. You have argued that a progression towards global justice requires a shift in focus focus from rights to obligations and capacity for both state actors and non-state actors. You have said, I regard rights theories as fashionable, powerful, and rather thoughtless ways of getting to the things that matter for justice. Could you elaborate on these utterances? Well, that was quite a provocative remark, wasn't it? But look, uh, we have to ask ourselves why two millennia of European writing on ethics tended to put the notion of obligation or duty first and would, of course, accept that some obligations had counterpart rights. But by starting with the rights, you cut out all those obligations that don't have counterpart rights, uh, obligations that people would traditionally have thought covered things like obligations of uh, beneficence or clemency or honesty and so on. Uh, So we cut down uh, uh, the range. But I also think there's a very interesting story to be told within the history of the human rights movement. The Universal Declaration is 1948. The European Convention is 1950. Both were, of course, produced by organisations of states, uh, by the United Nations, by the Council of Europe, and both uh, articulated um, standards that are very important and very promising. However, it wasn't clear that anybody was thinking that really states were the only organisations that were going to have to carry the counterpart duties that would make a reality of those rights. There was an obvious historic reason for that. At the time, in uh, 1948 or 50, the world was not a world of states. There were still empires and trust territories and colonies, and of course there was, until 1990, the enormous Soviet empire, pretending to be a plurality of states but highly unified, and so on. We see change when the United Nations adopted two covenants in 1966, they were implemented some years later, uh, where they assigned, as they thought, the counterpart duties to the states that signed up, the states' party, as they say. However, when you actually look at it, what the states were to take on weren't the duties. They were making sure that somebody or other carried the duties. They were second-order duties that were assigned to the states. And that, I think, is something we need to pay a lot of attention to because it tends to produce a rather unfortunate result if one assumes that everything should be done by the state. Uh, Now, the state can do things that no other institution can do. In particular, of course, some states are pretty good at enforcing the laws that they enact and pretty good at enacting laws. But a large number of states fail in this way. So we have a lot of rogue states that certainly don't want to enforce human rights and we have a lot of weak states that cannot enforce human rights. And I therefore think that one has to think very carefully about who ought to do what for whom, about the duties, and just saying, oh, the state should, is not enough. Now, of course, uh, I think that view is uh, quite widely held, but maybe not widely enough. People are too uh, 
likely to assume that our main task is to badger the states to do the enforcing. Many of them can't and some of them won't. Over the past few years, we have seen a number of crises and dramatic events in the world, as well as a variety of popular responses. What do you see as some of the most pressing issues of international relations and global justice today? And how can we find a way to address these problems in a way that promotes unity or understanding rather than polarisation? I'm going to say something a little bit um, uh, unfashionable there. Let me call it liberal realism. Um, The principles, indeed, should be liberal principles, uh, but it's not enough to be gestural about the enactment of the principles. One example of that gesture is to assume that it's all up to the state to do it. Um, And yet, when one thinks about it, assigning uh, to the most powerful institutions these complex duties could turn out to be rather like putting foxes in charge of hen houses, Um, they may not do it. So we have to think about the powers of other actors. That includes, of course, transnational corporations, movements. Uh, It certainly includes uh, less powerful institutions within states. And I think that realising that the obligations have to be, yes, allocated, but they also have to be met And mere compliance is usually not enough. Compliance is, of course, great when you've got a well-inclined and powerful state uh, uh, that organises compliance competently and helpfully. But that's not the situation in all parts of the world. How can we find common ground or strive towards collective rationality when people's lives, interests and grievances vary so greatly? And when phenomena that influence our lives seem to be increasingly unpredictable and beyond our control, how is the Kantian principle of universality applicable in this context? Well, the Kantian principle is um, not a principle about how to be effective. It's a principle about how to give others reasons. So you can start out with the Kantian idea. If I give the other party a reason to do something they must at least be able to understand what I'm uh, offering them. They may not adopt it, they may disregard it, and so on. But you're not reasoning if what you offer is something that the other party simply cannot take seriously or cannot understand. So in that sense, the Kantian principle of universalizability is a pretty weak principle. I think you can get with that principle to understanding which standards and principles matter. And they're not only the human rights standards, they're a wider range of standards. But I don't think we can get to, just by that principle, uh, to judging what to do in particular cases. And that's why in my more recent work on Kant, I've written a great deal on practical judgment, because it seems to me that is the essential addition to an understanding of which standards or principles would be the ones we could give reasons for, say, and how do we judge how to enact them in in particular contexts. That is difficult, and I note that it is very often a a topic that people ignore and don't like. This is a time of dramatic political changes. Let's look at Brexit specifically. The result of the referendum came as a shock to many people, and it brought the UK into political disarray to some degree. You've criticised the standard of the public debate that took place prior to the referendum. In what way? I think it was uh, probably an inappropriate question for a referendum, and uh, there were many ways in which the real issues, which are deep, some of them are constitutional issues, were not adequately presented to the public. And there are many ways in which the vote to leave the EU was uh, a very understandable protest against government policies that had neglected certain parts of the country and certain people. So it is understandable, but I fear that uh, the outcome may 
make things harder for the very people who were most inclined to vote in favour of Brexit. Uh, of course, we are now in the middle of uh, the legislative process for invoking Article 50, which will be the notification of an intention to withdraw from the European Union. So nothing is decided yet, uh, and it will take a very long time for things to settle down. Uh, there are those who think because uh, nothing has gone very wrong and some things have gone well with the economy in the last eight months, therefore uh, Brexit is without cost. I think it probably has serious costs. Uh, but uh, a referendum is a referendum, and I'm not myself in favour of having a second referendum on the outcome of what's negotiated. Uh, one constitutional error does not uh, get remedied by a second constitutional error. However, it will have to be presented to Parliament, and we are seeking, many of us, clarification about what happens in the event of no deal, or a deal that is extremely bad for the UK. Um, in yesterday's debate, it became clearer to me that um, it pro if it's a no deal, then probably it is an immediate move to World Trade Organization terms, WTO trade terms. But even that is not entirely clear, and the detail is incredibly complex. It was said during the campaign that the British public are sick of experts. Do you think they are? And if so, what can be done about it? Yes, this is one of the most fascinating uh, claims, uh, of course, made by someone who was then a minister. Um, the British people are not sick of experts. You ask someone, would you like me to take your appendix out for you? They say, no, thank you. I'd sooner go to a trained surgeon. <laughs> would you like me to... Uh, uh, perhaps uh, do your dental work for you. No, thank you, I'll go to a proper dentist. Of course we want experts. Now, um, what was meant by that sick of experts? I think they particularly were criticising over-reliance on economic models as a way of communicating with the public. And it's quite true that some of the leading Remain campaigners uh, tried to do that. I think it was foolish I think economic models are a very specialised art form. Uh, they are based on very particular definitions and assumptions. There are no way to communicate to the public. So I would fault the Remain political campaign in the UK for using that sort of communication. Uh, but doing without experts is, as a general policy, is pretty silly. Uh, however, it has produced, perhaps more in the US than in the UK, an extraordinary uh, wave, a crescendo of public opinion, uh, claiming that what we want is not truth, but something called truthiness, uh, a word that didn't exist in English till recently. And uh, it has also produced accusations coming, of course, from President Trump, as well as from those who oppose President Trump, that other people are peddling fake news. I'm glad to say that there is a pretty robust movement uh, in um, both uh, the academic and the voluntary sector, but also in public life, uh, to improve standards of fact-checking, to improve standards of communication. I'm sure that's necessary, but... And I'm sure that there are experts who exaggerated how much they knew and who didn't take the trouble to say, here's my degree of confidence in what I'm saying. I'm confident on these matters, but not on those matters. That's how you actually get people to take you seriously and decide whether you're worth trusting, is by communicating your uncertainty and the limitations of your confidence, as well as communicating clearly where you are confident. And so uh, there are many good uh, campaigns by uh, charitable bodies and academic bodies on taking evidence seriously and not getting hooked by pretend evidence. Are you alarmed by the apparent growth in the number of people who seem only to want to hear 
the facts and the news that they already agree with? Well, I suspect that it's not they who are at fault, but some of the technologies, because the technologies mean that as soon as people start clicking that they like something, it gets recirculated. And my own view is that we will have to, though I don't yet know how, to do something about uh, uh, the echo chambers, as we call it, the echo chambers whereby uh, that which is a popular message immediately gets mammoth circulation. And those will only be simple messages. And, of course, we know that tweets have... Um, I think it's 140 characters maximum. Uh, I am alarmed by that, and I think we need to take back public debate into um, a better shape, but it is difficult. And I suppose what alarms me most is that supposedly reputable organisations like Facebook are in fact filled with very, very unpleasant content. And why is that? The answer is that a great deal of what goes online is anonymous. Now, when people think they can't be identified, they're not in a conversation anymore. It is more like hiding behind a hedge and feeling I can throw stones, but nobody knows where I am. And we're going to have to do something about that. But I think it will take some years till we get back to a world in which it's possible for people to distinguish between uh, serious and malicious communication. <coughs> to go back to Europe, more broadly, what is your thought on the EU as a European project with respect to the requirements of representative democracy, national sovereignty, supranational legit legitimacy, and even individual autonomy? What a small question. Oh, I know. Are there fundamental <laughs> problems that need to be addressed, such as those of trust and accountability? And if so, how? Um, I think the EU has indeed got in a very difficult position. I was very much in favour of the UK remaining part of it. That's partly because last time I was in Berlin, shortly before the referendum, and I spoke with a lot of well-placed people, and they said, we hope... Uh, you don't vote to exit in Britain. We need the Brits in order to reform the EU. Unfortunately, they also said, some of them, because the French are broken. And uh, I think this is a very serious issue. Is the EU capable of reforming itself? Uh, or is it like the League of Nations? Uh, it's uh, ominous because... Um, if it is like the League of Nations, there's more difficulty to come. It, I think the EU has made two very big policy errors. Um, there may be some other errors that are recurrent, but the two big ones are the euro. Now, the euro, of course, is delightful if you are a German manufacturer and your currency is pegged uh, lower than it would otherwise be. If you would, if you still have the Deutschmark, because your export business thrives, it has been a catastrophe for Southern Europe. In the Mediterranean countries, up to forty percent of younger people are without employment. This is not a sustainable situation, and I understand entirely why uh, uh, the decision was not to expel Greece from the euro but rather to bail it out repeatedly as is happening. But it is a, a big blunder. The other blunder is probably Schengen. Uh, Schengen, in my opinion, violated uh, the right to asylum. The right to asylum is a right to seek asylum in the first place, that means a state uh, of safety that, you, that a refugee reaches because Schengen was instituted without any system by which refugees could register when they entered another state. You had this chaotic situation where Italy and Greece both said, well, make your way up to Germany or Sweden. And I think that uh, this was not a responsible way of dealing with refugees. Uh, one hopes that something better will emerge, but it hasn't yet. You are particularly concerned with one of the major consequences of Brexit, 
the creation of a land border between the, the UK and the EU in Ireland, an issue to which you bring your own Northern Irish perspective. What do you see as the problems that arise from this? Well, the very obvious problem that has been talked about most is that um, one can anticipate that such a land border would involve different immigration policies for the Republic of Ireland, which would still be uh, in the EU and for Northern Ireland, which is in the UK. And uh, nobody in Ireland, North or South, would wish to see a heavily policed land border re-established. And it's quite a long border. It's 300 miles. Uh, so uh, that is the, the, the most evident and so far the most discussed problem. But there is a second problem, which is about uh, the customs, uh, the uh, travel of goods, uh, where, of course, it will depend on just which economic structures the UK is party to in the event of Brexit. And there's a third problem, which I take rather seriously, which is biosecurity. Uh, both the Northern Irish and the Republic of Ireland economies are heavily agricultural, and the very important dairy industry roughly works on an all-island basis, so that um, it's absolutely essential that the same standards of biosecurity are applied in both jurisdictions. For decades, you've been one of the most influential women in academia, holding many important leadership positions. Could you describe your experiences as a woman in academia? Would you call yourself a feminist? I think we shouldn't let the word feminist be appropriated by cliques. I think we should keep it for people who feel that women should have uh, uh, the, the same uh, uh, standards uh, applied to them as men. Um, I think it's quite difficult for me now even to remember or to describe how different things were when I first started work. Uh, I got very used when I was young to being the only woman in many, many contexts, the only woman uh, very often in uh, a seminar, the only woman in a lecture, the only woman in, in a department. Uh, a useful training, uh, but I don't wish it on others. And uh, I do remember once having a seminar where there was only one man. And he said to me, as we convened, will there be any other chaps? And I said, well, I don't know. But you have to learn to get used to that, and so do women. <laughs> Following up on political representation, you were created a life peer as Baroness O'Neill of Bengal in 1999, and have served as a crossbench member of the House of Lords since 2000. Bearing in mind that many of the listeners to this podcast will come from outside the UK, how do you characterise the way the House of Lords fits into a system of modern representative democracy? For instance, to what extent are its members accountable to British citizens? And is it an institution that enjoys a high level of public trust? It seems to enjoy a very uh, incoherent level of public trust. Some people will say, uh, outrageous, its members are not elected. And other people will say, really good news because their debates are sensible and actually deal with the issues. So it's very difficult to know whether it enjoys a high level of trust. I think um, reform will happen. It's quite difficult we had a major reform in 99 uh, when most of the hereditary peers left. Um, but we are not elected. And uh, we are appointed, and some of us are appointed by an independent appointments panel, and others are effectively nominated by the political parties. And that does not always go happily because there is temptation for the political parties to put in more of their supporters, and even to put in people who perhaps don't do that much work. So it's not entirely ideal, but there's quite high turnover. We finally managed last year to get a retirement procedure. Before that, people felt very guilty if they stopped coming. 
They felt they had to be manifestly ill before they stopped coming. Now, better sense prevails and people can retire and a lot have retired. But uh, further reform is needed. The interesting question constitutionally is whether the best reform would be uh, uh, to have an elected second chamber. It's not universal in, in democracies to have an elected second chamber. And it may be that there will be some other structures that would work reasonably well. One of the things that people say is it is quite useful to have a structure that no political party controls, which is the case, and quite useful to have a structure in which there are a lot of independents. And so uh, there are ways of, and I won't go into my own pet plans for constitutional reform, I will just say I think there's a very large majority in the House of Lords who would like an effective reform and uh, who are willing to work for an effective reform. Uh, There's very little opposition to it, but it has to be effective, and that is the difficult thing. We don't feel, most of us, that uh, repeating the structure of uh, the House of Commons would be the best way to go. Indeed. Do you think that, in spite of all its protestations, the House of Commons wouldn't want a second chamber that had an equally uh, democratically valid mandate? Well, the last time it was the House of Commons that scuppered the uh, reform proposals, presumably for that very reason, and that has has gone on repeatedly uh, since the major reform of 1911. It's it's an institution where experts prove prove their worth. I think that's probably true, and uh, uh, for example, uh, we have a, a, a number of engineers and physicists, and in, in many of our debates that's extremely important. And uh, we don't nowadays, uh, because people enter politics so much uh, via other routes, either local politics or uh, the party political machines, we don't get so many people with interesting expertise uh, becoming MPs. We get some, and they're very valuable, but it's not the universal thing. Other topics with which you've been greatly involved include medicine, bioethics and consent, and you served as an expert on, on these issues in a number of ways. Why were you initially drawn to the philosophy of medicine? Um, well, I suppose because I thought it was a a bit repetitive, and b uh, there were some areas that were being neglected, and c there were some topics that were being given far too much weight. Uh, so I did a book with a colleague, uh, Neil Manson, in two thousand and seven called "Rethinking Informed Consent in Bioethics," and we came to the conclusion that people lay far too much weight on consent. It's not that consent is unimportant. It is that it cannot be uh, the whole story because you can't give informed consent to things that you can't understand or where you're under very great uh, pressure to receive treatment. Informed consent should strictly be in place for clinical ethics and research participation. It has no possible part in public health and it's also not sufficient in clinical matters and in uh, research ethics. Again, because people can't understand everything. And if you look at some of the international documents like the World Medical Association's Declaration of Helsinki, which, by the way, has been revised and improved I think eight or is it nine times, uh, there's a certain what one of my colleagues has called consent fetishism in there. They think consent uh, can do far more work than it can. So uh, what I've been looking at is how to keep consent in the areas where it can do some work, but there are areas where it can't do much work, and they include public health. Public health has to be organised on principles that cannot be Um, a matter for opt-in and opt-out for everybody. You can't say, would you like really safe water or so-so safe water? Uh, We all drink the same water, we all breathe the same air, we all 
receive medicines that have been um, validated and licensed in the same way. And I'm glad to say there's now much more of a movement in public health ethics, and I think that's all to the good. Uh, public health ethics isn't only about uh, uh, what happens in hospitals uh, and what happens at doctors' offices. It's really a, a, the whole spectrum of our lives. And of course, in particular, uh, the emergence of novel infections, most recently Zika, but before that Ebola, and before that SARS, uh, provide very uh, distinctive challenges to public health systems. They are very different from one another, and uh, I think there's still a lot of work to be done there. In your article, Reason and Evidence in Ethics, you argue for the need for normative considerations and say that science cannot and should not aspire to be value-free. Could you elaborate? Well, this aspiration to, uh, for science to be value-free uh, was, of course, uh, part of the legacy of logical positivism in the uh, 1930s. Logical positivism went much further and said that the only meaningful propositions were those that could be either empirically verified or logically proven. Um, by the way, nobody has yet discovered whether that principle, the so-called verification principle, is meant to be empirically verified or logically proven. In my view, it's neither. However, the reason why uh, this aspiration to value freedom uh, makes pretty little sense to me is that we're generally very clear that we want scientific research to be undertaken by people who report their results honestly and communicate them accurately and are trustworthy. Those are important standards and they are not empirical standards, they are normative standards. Now, I don't use the word value or value-free because I think the word value was contaminated by the logical positivists some 70 years ago. And when people talk about values now, it is often quite difficult to know whether they mean ethical standards or subjective preferences. That is, in my view, a pretty fatal equivocation. So I deal with it by not using the word value. Lastly, I'd like to ask you about the humanities. How do you perceive the status of the humanities today? Do you believe there is a crisis in the humanities? And if so, what can be done about it? Oh, crises pop up all over the place. Uh, but I have to say, I think the standard of a lot of work in the humanities is immensely high. I've just been reading uh, the uh, submissions for election to the British Academy this morning, and I thought, my goodness, these people are good. And it doesn't mean that every academic is good worldwide. There are many who did not receive as good a training as they would have liked or who um, venture beyond their areas of expertise. But I think the standards are high. And I also have noticed over the last four or five years, certainly in the United Kingdom, but I think also more broadly, a much better standard of collaboration between the natural sciences, the social sciences, and the humanities. And uh, I take a lot of comfort from that. I think it's been a very worthwhile journey, and I do not any longer hear colleagues in the natural sciences assuming that everything can be done by the natural sciences. That used to be quite a common assumption, and we still have some people who are positivists of that sort. But actually, I think relatively few. What we have more of are people who think that normative standards are just a matter of subjective preference and uh, use the, the ambiguous term value uh, to push that particular idea. Uh, I try to oppose them. So you don't think the humanities needs to be fighting its corner, arguing its case? You think that it's... Its role is sufficiently understood and valued? Not everywhere. And so one always needs to look at where things are being uh, eroded. Uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, I have spent quite a lot of my uh, 
extracurricular life trying to fight the decline in language teaching and language learning, uh, which I regard as quite essential for many different practical purposes. I think I've handed that, that responsibility on to others, but I still take it very seriously. So there are, if you like, local crises for the humanities. Uh, there were, in my view, also crises of another sort 20 years ago, when a few areas of the humanities um, were taken over by then-fashionable ways of approaching questions. Uh, one might think uh, that uh, it didn't help uh, literary studies to be quite so enthralled to postmodernism in the 1980s, but that too um, passed. Honora O'Neill, thank you very much. <laughs>